All right, friends, Zig coming in on the top. Today on the show, we have the return of Richard X. Heyman, singer-songwriter extraordinaire, uh, drummer by trade. The uh, first band was the Doughboys, and he's filled in and played with a ton of amazing artists. Link Ray, Brian Wilson, Benny King, with legends, definers of our modern music. He was in it, man. He grew up around it. And, like, that's that's a primary source, you know? Um, Bayhu. Yeah, Richard has a new album out. It's called 67,000 Miles Per Album. I don't know why symbolically that one trips me up, but 67,000 Miles Per Album is available now on all streaming platforms. There's a cool Kickstarter campaign, and if you uh, donate certain amounts, you get cool prizes like bonus tracks. He talks about that a little bit near the end of this interview, but... Um, we're going to check out one track. We're going to check out, this is Traveling Salesman, off 67,000 miles per album. Richard X. Heyman.
Richard X. Heyman, traveling salesman, 67,000 miles per album, available now on all streaming platforms. A rocker, right? But this album goes everywhere. It hits a lot of melodic, beautiful tunes. Very, uh, very Richard style, and I recommend you guys listen to it. Um, before we get to this conversation, we got to the story, which was absurd. Um, I want you guys to imagine what it would be like to go to a guitar center for drumsticks, and then you hear and see Jimi Hendrix playing with Frank Zappa, and they're talking about shop. There's talking guitars, and you walk over to them. What do you say, right? Well, that's what happened to Richard. It wasn't Guitar Center, but the equivalent to whatever a music shop was around in the 60s. Anywho, um, it's a really epic story, and we got some cool Pete Townsend stories too. Um, if you guys can like, rate, review, subscribe to any of the podcast platforms, it helps me keep talking to cool guests like Richard and sharing insights and stories and inspiration with you. Um, and yeah, without further ado, friends, thank you so much. Here we go. This is my conversation with Richard X. Heyman. Um, but anywho, super glad to talk to you again, my friend. Ah, I'm glad to be here. And uh, 67,000 miles an album is a great record. I got the advanced from Howard, and I'm, I remember because last time we were talking um, with copious, oh, thank you. Uh, with, co- uh, with copious notes, you were kind of saying you were kind of in a, a, a funk a little bit before. Copious right. Notes. Uh-huh. I was. And uh, wasn't sure if there was going to be another one, so I was super glad. I wasn't either. <laughs> I wasn't either, but uh, I just kind of jumped right back into it. Yeah? Was uh, doing that last record, was doing copious notes, kind of getting in the grind of, of getting the tracks out and layering everything, and like it just kept it going? Or what, what was the process after you finished copious notes? I think... I had some things left over, some drum tracks, and I just figured I'd try uh, filling those drum tracks in with the songs that went with them. And once I started that, I kind of got the whole bug again to to write, and I started writing new material, and I was combining that with the stuff that I already had left over from the uh, past album, so... I was good to go. I just started laying down more and more stuff, and next thing I knew, I had uh, a fifteen-song album. <laughs> <laughs> nice. What was the What was some tracks that didn't make copious notes that made uh, sixty-seven thousand? Oh, all the uh, songs that I had written for the Doughboys were from a session of drum tracks that I had done previous to copious notes that could have been on copious notes. And so that would be uh, Traveling Salesman, Second Street, Exit Homestead, uh, Surefire, Crave, and History. Hmm. (laughs) So I had a lot of... (laughs) I think there's five or six of those type of songs on 67,000, so they could have easily been done on the last album, but for some reason I just didn't get to them. In the, the Doughboys, they're working on something as well? That This was kind of like going on at the same time, or 
No, no, the Doughboys had broken up by that point. These were songs that they had included on past albums. God. And I, and I wanted to try my version of the same songs because I wrote them and I figured I'd give it a shot. So those drum tracks down. So that's how that started. And then this album kind of was inspired partially because I had those drum tracks left over. And once I started filling them in with uh, guitars and vocals, I was on my way to the, this album. So, but what happens when I, whenever you know you have kind of these self-induced uh, um, deadlines or you know obligations, at least for me, I, I just start creating more and I, I get into a writer's mode. So I all the kind of most of the more melodic type songs on this album are pretty recently written except for a couple that are very old. What was it? Oh, because that, 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 that makes me listening through it. There seems to be like, there's like ones that have these lush harmonies really, really built around the melody. And then it goes to like a rocker, like Traveling Salesman was like, I'm like, that's a jam. That's cool. And then like, not that, not that all the other ones weren't cool, but it was just like, it has this cool ebb and flow on this record of going through this. So that makes sense that it was part of the, like the, uh, the kind of tunnel vision of, of, of writing when you get into that. Yeah. Well, what happens is uh, a lot of times I'll go for a more homogenous concept. And Nancy, my wife says, no, no, you gotta mix it up. Variety is good. So she, kind of is responsible for that, for kind of that back and forth between the blues tinge, grittier stuff and the melodic ones. Because I, I kind of wanted at some point to just make an album of all really melodic pop from beginning to end. Um, but she's, she thinks that it's better to mix it up, so I... I that's what I've been doing. <laughs> I got a, I got a listener. Was it? Well, I th she's not wrong. Like it, I, I enjoyed, I, I enjoyed the ebb and flow of the record for sure. And it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of like a concert. You know, you wanna, you wanna, if you get them all like in one mood. But you know, record records can be moods. You know. Right. Well, that's what I mean. I like albums like. Uh, the American Rubber Soul by the Beatles had a very folksy, acoustic feel about it <clears throat> from beginning to end, even though there's some rockers on there. But it still gave you that warm, kind of woody feeling. So I always liked that. But, the, you know, you have, uh, you know, those Beatle albums like Revolver, where you have, you know, Paul doing those really lush, beautiful songs, you know, there and everywhere for no one. And then John's doing uh, Tomorrow Never Knows and Andrew Burton sings. So there's, you know, there's quite a variety there. So there's definitely something to be said, like you said, about this ebb and flow of going, taking the listener to different places, which I kind of get. No, for definitely for sure on the record. But like, like, uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, the Beatles they kind of forefronted a lot of things with like with even the track numbers, right? 
like the amount of tracks per record, and if they, it would make sense that we can find them finding their ebbs and flows. But they have, you know, the multiple songwriter thing. I think that's gonna always have that kind of ebb and flow. Oh, that's that's the Ringo that's song, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, very cool. Did um, so with a uh, with the, this one, one song that stuck out in like, uh, not one, but one uh, in the particular lineup, um, Washington. Um, thinking Washington, that, yeah, like uh, taking it from his perspective. I thought that was a really cool songwriting point. Um, I'm gonna guess that's a reflection on current times. But was that uh, was that for a copious batch or was that for a sixty-seven thousand batch? <coughs> that's a new song. That was a, that new, was a new song, okay. specifically for this album. Yeah, and uh, it kind of I had like most of my songs. I have the music first. And a lot of these were written on piano, just kind of playing it over and over again. And then suddenly some little lyrical pop into my head, like Washington Rock. Once I heard that in my head, that was like, oh, okay, that's the place in New Jersey where I grew up. And it was this historical vista. And, you know, it was a big tradition in Plainfield, New Jersey, where I grew up, to go up to Washington Rock and look out. You could see Manhattan on a clear day. and It was a really interesting place to go because it was mixed with history, because Washington, George Washington, used that as a lookout. But then, as I wrote the different verses, I thought, this is also about my father, my father taking me up there, and George Washington's the father of our country, and so it's a song about fathers, and it's also a little bit of a history lesson in what took place there and why Washington was there. So that it was a fun little project to just get that all out into one song. Yeah, I thought yeah, I thought it was very well written. Um, and that's cool knowing the that your personal history with that. Um. Like, it's interesting, like, certain... I've, I've talked to a couple people recently that have taken songwriting to a certain spot. And, like, mm-hmm. just... I, I don't know if it's a, a practice just to really try to, like... Because when you're writing musically or lyrically for music, you have to trim the fat of a lot of things and hit points really quickly. Um, mm. So was that is that, like, part of the process is kind of writing it out, like, writing out these memories and trimming what works... Or are you fitting it to the melody? I mean, I've been at this for a while, so I kind of, <laughs> you know, know the tricks of, yeah. of how to kind of get a more succinct thought from a, a recollection, let's say, or a personal history, or, you know, some storytelling. You know, songs are either telling stories or a personal introspection is, you know, in words. <laughs> and so, excuse me, so I try to, you know, just get right to the point. And then, you, you know, there's the whole kind of mechanics of writing. I mean, there's a rhyme scheme and a rhythm scheme, you know, and you have to have the right amount of syllables and beats. So it's all kind of like what they call songcraft, I guess. But I don't really think that much about it as I'm doing it. It's just, Kind of hopefully is going to naturally fall into place. That checks out. 
I don't, I don't know. Like it, it seems like if you're if you're plunking along and like playing, and then the lyric comes from that symbolically and all that technological, like all that kind of tech uh, approach to writing will kind of line up with itself. Now, do you dip? Yeah, was it? I'm sorry. Go on. <laughs> sorry, I was gonna I say. I could keep about it, but go on. No, no. Like I'm, I would love to hear it. No, what I was about to say is, uh, you know, when I'm playing piano, I just start kind of getting into a trance-like state and try out different things and chord progressions, and that comes very naturally. And then, you know, a little lyrical idea will pop in there. But then I have to kind of get the pad out and sit down and really think about how to get it done. That that part of it, getting the lyrics to fit the music, so it sounds like they're married to each other, is a bit of work. That's at least for me. That's where I have to struggle a little bit and get it right. You know what seems to to match up with the music. So that that part of it is. something like Washington Rock, I knew what I kind of wanted to say. I had to do a little little historic research to to make sure what I was saying was actually true. Right. That's, um, like, is it, I can't, because I know you play bits of everything and drums were your main. Did, um, was it always piano that you write with? Oh, no, no. It's about half and half between piano and guitar. Okay. Uh, but uh, just, uh, I have a piano that's very, it's got a built-in, it's an electric piano, and it's got a built-in speaker, so you don't have to, like, mm. do anything except turn it on and you're ready to play. Right. So whenever I even get in the mood to play, I just normally hit that on button on the piano and and there it is. I got piano sounds right there. Um, you know, I have a few guitars laying around, which occasionally I pick up. But mainly now, it seems like whenever I pick up a guitar, I'm practicing playing lead guitar, trying to learn more about playing blues and things like that. But I, I've done my share of writing on guitar, you know, mainly on acoustic guitar. But this album... You know, most of these songs were written on piano, and then I turn them into guitar songs. Got it. You, and I don't know. It's not, there's something to um. There's something to the convenience of an instrument in its placement wherever you reside, right? If it, the guitar right. is in the case, uh, yeah, right. that it's it's a minor thing, but that unboxing of the case will yeah. let you walk, <laughs> walk right. Back. A lot of people are just naturally lazy. Aside from that, yeah, I, I have a few guitars that I keep out on stand so they're ready to go. But and I just, I don't know, I've been playing more piano lately. Let's just put it that way. But I, I get a real joy out of turning the piano songs into guitar songs because yeah. all the good things that you do on a piano aren't what you would ever think to do on a guitar. So then when you pick up the guitar and you try to learn, okay, that arpeggio that I played on the piano, so far into the guitar 
But when you get it done, it's so interesting to me because uh, you have something original and, and different. A lot of these songs, like Washington Rock, all those guitar parts are really piano parts played on guitar. You know, it is it is because um, how the piano is laid out to do like certain inversions or or arpeggios or like on the guitar it really makes it distinct. I agree with that. It's interesting. I I listened to this um, interview actually from two sources recently. This has been kind of on my mind. Um, that that whole idea of taking one instrument and transferring it to another um, with Danny Gatton. Are you familiar with that guitar player? Uh, yeah, sure. He, uh, he would take a bunch of organ things, like organ approaches, and play them on the guitar, which made a really weird, uh, weird inversions and weird movements. And uh, yeah, yeah. Victor Wooten also spoke like on a I forget which uh, some lesson thing he put out a long time ago about like taking a saxophone and playing it on your bass, you know, or taking an or a piano and playing, it, you know, and like that's such a musical concept you know not to me i feel like a lot of times you get hunkered down by the the um the language or vocabulary of the instrument which would make sense like when you pick up guitar you want to work on guitar licks you want to work on blues you know because that's the guitar right. that's you got to yeah. know some vocab to be able to be like i'm here you know but um on piano i mean there's definitely vocab for it but the the transfer between the two is such a cool musically exciting an original kind of place, you know. It's it's a lot of fun because when once you, you get a piano uh, arpeggio or chord or riff on the guitar, it sounds like something that's never been done before, and it's kind of a thrill to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got this riff now that no one else has ever thought to play before, and I, I get a kick out of that. And, you know, especially if I get to use it in a song on the recordings. And just the, I don't know, even the analog, because the guitar is so blocky, you know what I mean? It's so shape and pattern based. And so, I mean, so is the piano, but in like a more laid out, clear way. Yeah. And to put it, put well, it. Good. I was going to say, a good example on the new album is the first song, You Can Tell Me, <coughs> which is a p total piano song. Right. And then. I learned it on the guitar, note for note, and the piano is still in there, but you mainly hear the guitars, I think, I don't know what the listeners actually hear, because I know what's in there, there's yeah. Rickenback 12 string, there's some six strings, there's the piano, it's all mixed together, and they're all playing basically the same thing. It's definitely a wall of sound for sure, and it's interesting because like, now knowing that from your perspective, it's coming from this piano approach. When I listened to a, when I listened to it for the first time, I uh, I got like, oh, this is like got fusiony vibes. You know what I mean? Like this has got some fusion. Yeah, yeah, some friends have said that. I think um, because you know, first of all, let me just tell you that that song was written when I was 17 years old. Yeah. Back in yeah, back way, way, way back in time. One of the first songs I ever wrote. Huh. And it's been kind of in the the background for all these decades because I couldn't quite put it all together uh, lyrically. And I tried recording it with different lyrics, and I, I just never could get it to work. So I finally felt like I got some new lyrics that are going to work. 
and you know, I tried it for this album finally, and it all seemed to come together for me, especially putting the Rickenbacker guitars, playing those arpe those piano arpeggios. I thought that was an interesting, you know, slant on it. So that that's kind of what we've been talking about. Where it's a piano arpeggio played on guitar that I don't think any guitar player would would naturally do because you have to really it's a little convoluted as far as you know learning how to play it. It's it's weird. It's that's a the every. It's like playing something on on banjo on piano. You know, on banjo <laughs> it makes sense because of how it's laid out. Like on piano, you're yeah, not gonna right. ring that extra high note just for the fun of it. Right. You know, <laughs> or drone that yeah. high note. <laughs> I mean, if you have a guitar and you play, let's say, a G chord, and you just kind of arpeggiate right down from the low string to the high, there's a, an order of strings and notes you're hitting. That aren't the, you wouldn't do that on the piano and vice versa. So right there, you know, a natural arpeggio on one instrument is foreign to the other. But it I, that's what I think really made this record stick out when because listening from copious notes to sixty-seven thousand, it's like it's it's you. It's it's all around you. Like, but it's cool to have these distinct like approaches. Was uh did any of like the writing for this album kind of come from the bonus stuff you were doing for copious notes like how you guys were doing the uh um like just piano takes of songs off copious notes for um the Patreon I believe um or just like vocal takes um well like I said earlier I think the initial inspiration was the drum tracks that were left over that we hadn't gotten to. That's what kind of triggered this. I wanted to complete those songs. And one, the first one I did was Traveling Salesman, and I got so excited about it because I thought it came out you know, pretty close to what I was looking for. You know, We were on our way to making a new album at that point because it's like, okay, let's do another one. And we did like... Uh, Brave, and, and we did a bunch of the, but at the same time, I in between that I was writing these new, more melodic songs. So, you know, if there was one we were re real excited about, we'd start recording that. And so, uh, okay. Are you, are you guys gonna do um, bonus stuff like you did for copious notes with this record? Well, we're gonna have the vocals only. What are we gonna have? Yeah, Nancy. We're gonna have instrumental tracks and, and and I think acapella, and then we have a couple you know a few songs that didn't fit on the record, so we have those. So yeah, there's a few things we're gonna to put together. Oh, cool. Was it? Because um, I remember last time we talked that that process. You seem to be really kind of moved by that, um, taking apart some of those things and playing them in different ways. So it's it's cool that it's sticking around. Yeah, it's kind of become just a method that I use, not exclusively, but something that every now and then just seems to work. Very cool. One thing um, on kind of a off-album topic question. Um, yeah. 
I want and I because I listened back to our other conversation. And I don't think I really asked about your time at Cafe Wa as the house band. Okay. Uh, we got the gig, and, and uh, I think, I can't remember, if, I think it was like, I don't know if it was every night of the week or six nights a week, but it was, you know, most of the week, and <laughs> there were different acts on the bill, there'd be a comedian, we were like <clears throat> the main musical act of the night throughout most of that summer but there was a hypnotist i remember that and he i remember one night uh, my sister came in with a friend of hers and the guy hypnotized uh, my sister's friend i thought that was kind of fun did it but, work um, was she really hypnotized or I, were you... think, uh, I think she thought she was a chicken or something like that. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, there was a comedian who was kind of like the Lenny Bruce style. Uh, I liked him, but I don't know, he didn't seem to be going over that big. But <laughs> um, and I'm trying to think. There, occasionally, there might have been uh, like a, a folk singer or something that came in. But we were the main musical act, you know. And at that point, the Doughboys were a three-piece, so we were kind of like a power trio. This is at the height of, like, Jimi Hendrix and Cream. I remember one night, Felix Papillardi, the producer of Cream, came in to see us. Yeah? That was exciting. Did you meet him? Yeah, yeah, he was, he was very complimentary of my drumming, and that was cool. That's but a big deal, <laughs> He's yeah. listening to Ginger Baker, man. That's cool. Yeah, I, I was playing, I'm pretty sure, yeah, I was playing double bass drum there. Yeah? Yeah, it's a small stage, but somehow I, I got my double bass drum set up <laughs> on that stage. It's funny because I, I was really inspired by Ginger Baker and, and Keith Moon as far as playing with a double bass, and then... I went to see Jimi Hendrix, and Mitch Mitchell was playing the single kick drum. Ah. <laughs> and I got so excited about that and inspired that I went back to that style. And I never played double bass again. The car and the loads in were way one kick drum lighter. <laughs> was it? Um... Yeah. It's true. There's a lot of load, a lot of slipping. But uh, it was a fun experience. We all stayed at a place called the Albert Hotel, which was a few blocks away, and had a lot of escapades. And got to meet Pete Townsend one night, who was in one of the rooms with a band called the Blues Magoos, who were like a local village band. What was that, that like? Was, was Pete cool? Uh, well, what ha I wrote about this in my book. It's a whole to do with just <clears throat> we were uh, <clears throat> living on a different floor. I, I can't remember why we were down on their floor, but I think it w I think what it was is um, we got back from the gig, the Cafe Wild, and we saw 
<clears throat> the Who's tour bus was parked in front of the hotel where we were staying. So we knew something was up. And we figured that he was probably with this band, the Blues Magoos. So sure enough, he was in their room playing acoustic guitar, giving them like a little performance. And we kept trying to go in, and they wouldn't let us in. And the, the door was partially open. We you know, got to listen, and we could see him. And at some point, they asked us to go to the deli and get them some sandwiches. So we figured, okay, that's our ticket to get in. And we got back with the sandwiches, and they still wouldn't let us in. Uh-huh. So we were kind of miffed. And we were all sitting on the floor in the hallway in front of the door, <laughs> these big water bugs crawling all over us. And we were from New Jersey. We never saw a cockroach before, so we were a little <laughs> taken aback. But uh, we got to hear all the music and could see them, and that, that was the extent of it. But it was still exciting. And was it just like Who tunes that he was, that were yeah, out? Yeah, he was doing stuff from uh, the Who Sell Out. He was playing Tattoo and a couple songs from that era. So that was cool. That's super cool. We kind of hear behind, because he, he's the mastermind of, of a lot of the Who, or all the Who stuff. And like, we kind of hear just him do that. Wow. Yeah, it was very exciting. And then many decades later, I, I met him because I was signed to the same uh, publishing company as him. Yeah? Yeah, so I got to uh, meet him backstage at a Who concert at Madison Square Garden. And I, I mentioned to him how I saw him <laughs> yeah. back, you know, at the Albert Hotel playing with the Blues Magoos and I told him I saw the first appearance of the Who in America, which I did, and he didn't believe a word of it. <laughs> he, he was, I don't know why, that night I must have uh, eaten a lot of healthy food or something, because he said, nah, you're too young, you couldn't have been there. <laughs> nah, I said, oh, no, I was there. You're like, Remember those sandwiches? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> if it wasn't for me when I had those sandwiches. Oh, wow. Um, is the Blues Magoos guy still around? Um, I don't know. I think maybe a couple of them died. I don't know. I don't really know their history that well, but they had uh, a big hit record. You ain't seen nothing yet. It was... What? No, no. That's not... What was it called? Yeah. We ain't seen nothing yet. Something like that. Anyway, they had like a top ten hit. Nice. What is it? Uh, so... That's that's cool. That's crazy. He didn't believe you. Um, but, but yeah, I know it's 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 really a traumatic experience when you meet one of your heroes and they don't and they think you're lying to them. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't usually approach celebrities. The only reason I was talking to them was I was backstage and they were having like a little kind of backstage party and some woman came up to me and asked if I would go up to Pete and ask for an autograph for her because she was too nervous. So I said, all right. So I went up with a piece of paper and, and I explained, she's like, an autograph, and, you know, I'm standing there, so the next thing I got to do is start, you know. Telling the story. Conversation of some kind. Yeah. Did, uh, I made the mistake, of, you know, because, you know, when you meet a celebrity, you know, they've heard it all and it's like, you just should give them a little bit of a compliment and move on. But 
a lot of people, their instinct is to uh, relate to when they saw them, you know, so you'll say, oh, I saw you at such and such a concert, I was there, you know, they don't want to hear that, they don't care. <laughs> you know, where he just got done playing this incredible concert of, uh, what was it, Quadrophenia, and it was a great show, and I should have complimented him on the show, and I didn't even think to do that, I was like so nervous, I just said, ah, I saw your first show in America, and he goes, no, you didn't, I said, yeah, I did. You're too young, and then I start telling about the blues with blues. It was downhill from there. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> it's weird, you know. And some people, because you see, some people really light up on that, like, and then some people are like, ah, you know. So I guess it really depends on the on the person. But I agree. I, d I definitely think the person that whatever they just did, just like any artist, even if it's like someone that that big, they're still probably in their head about it a little bit, you know. That land, right. that stick. Are you here just because of what I did or what I'm doing? You know. Right. Well, when you you meet somebody that has this amazing legacy and they accomplished so many things, it's like where do you begin? But I guess you're right. I think the best thing to do is just compliment them on on the show they just did or the record they just put out. Cause that's what everybody wants to hear. Right. Right. That their work still is good. And is as exciting. I know. It's like I have this new album out. The last thing I want to hear is somebody saying, oh, I really loved, you know, the Corners album. Or the, it's like I appreciate it, but I want to hear about the new album. Just put all this work into it. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that is a good album. and not, to, But, you know, that's where it grows to where you are now. And, like, that's what's amazing about what you're doing now is, like, every project, because diving through what you've done, to get to the new record, uh, 67,000 miles. I don't know why that's that's tripping me up uh, <laughs> symbolically today. Um, but you can hear that progression. And the idea that this one might sound more fusion-y, I think it's super cool because that's like, that's heightened like musicality. But the songwriting and the luscious melodies are all still there. Um, one, other, one other quick, uh, did you jam with Jimi Hendrix? No, okay. I think uh, the bass player in the Doughboys. Oh, uh, okay. I was wondering. I have. I, I had that bit written down, and I was like, I don't know. So okay. I met. I met him. You met him. Had a com Yeah, I met Jimi Hendrix and had a nice conversation with him, and he was very nice. And he was with Frank Zappa at the time, so I got a double wham. I got both their autographs. Got to talk to them, so that was very exciting. What was it? Well, what, what was that combo like? I walked into Manny's music store here in New York, and they were just about to close the store. I was buying some drumsticks for a, a little kind of audition session the Doughboys were about to do. And I hear this guitar wailing in the back of the store. And the store is empty. They're just kind of getting ready to close up. And I walk back there, and it's Jimi Hendrix. He's sitting there. <laughs> And standing up beside him is Frank Zappa. So, you know, I'm, I'm not leaving. I go back, you know, I bought my drumsticks and I went back there and I uh, just sat down and listened to him play. And then he stopped and he was talking a little bit to Frank and then I joined in and told him, asked a few questions. 
never asked anybody before in my life for an autograph, but I, I said, I, I can't miss this opportunity. And I, I got a napkin and a pen, and they both signed it on one napkin. Jimmy Timmy's was be groovy, Jimmy uh -huh. Hunter. Frank said, "Thank you, Frank Zappa." <laughs> what were what were they talking about? Was Hendrix showing them stuff? And right, you know, he was playing out a Les Paul. Huh. He was playing, which you don't usually associate with him. And it, you know, right. it was a right hand Les Paul, and he was well in a way. And they were, I guess they were talking about, you know, guitars and stuff. And other, you know, at that point, I barely played guitar. I was mainly a drummer. But I, I just thought I gotta say something, so I said, uh, "Did you ever try to seek out a left-handed Les Paul instead of playing a right-handed one?" And he goes, "Yeah, I know they have them, but I, he says, I prefer the right-handed ones. I like the way it feels upside down." <laughs> so, huh. and and to top off the story, about six months later. I was in this. I was filling in on drums for some band that was opening for the Mothers of Invention at Fairleigh Dickinson University, and was backstage and standing next to Frank Zappa, and I reminded him how I met him at Manny's with Jimi Hendrix. And he said, "Oh yeah, 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 I remember." And he was very nice. And he was really uh, complimentary of, of my drum solo that I had just done. He told me. He says, you have the fastest foot I have ever heard in my life. Talking about, you know, all that blues. Yeah. Was that with the double bass? Did you double bass that gig? No, no, that was <laughs> with a single. Man. But I, de I developed this thing, kind of like a John Bonham style kind of thing, where you do very fast riffs on the kick drum like and the tom skin. Yeah, it sounds kind of like you know double bass, but it's just one. I had to get that compliment from Zappa because he can be a tough he can be a tough critic. Wow, man, that's so I cool. I know. I know. I wanted to just I was in high school at the time. I just wanted to quit high school and go on the road with the mothers. And man, to see the mothers at that like beginning of a stage, wow, that had to be epic too. Oh yeah, it was so many great concerts in that era. I mean, I was fortunate to grow up just as rock and roll was getting really interesting with, you know, the advent of the quality PA systems like they had at the Fillmore East. You know, because I saw early rock concerts where it was more about the event. You know, I saw the Beatles, I saw the Beatles a few times and Dave Clark and Stones, and those were just exciting. They were filled with screaming girls, and the fact that you're seeing these superstars was amazing. But then right after that, right around six, you know, basically right when the Beatles stopped touring, around 67, all of a sudden these really good quality PA systems were being used. And then you go to, like, the film were, and it sounded like a record. You know, and it was like, oh, why didn't the Beatles, you know, stick around long to to play these kind of quality gigs where you could really get into the mu music side of things? Probably because yeah. they they 
when people would go see them, they're like, we need a better thing. <laughs> like, no one can hear anything. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it was definitely uh, coming. Yeah. I remember, you know, like just in the bands that I grew up with, everybody would get these column PAs. They were like uh, these thin columns that would have maybe four speakers in each one. I don't know if you're familiar with those PAs, but those were the first PAs that most groups use. And then they start to get this thing called the voice of the theater, which were the speakers they used in movie theaters for the audio. And there were these big black boxes that had a 15-inch speaker, a big horn. And that became the state-of-the-art PA. And then they just kind of progressed from there. And by the time... They were putting PAs in places like the Fillmore. They really knew what they were doing, and they had these audio experts just designing the greatest-sounding PAs. So it didn't matter how loud you know, the band was. You'd still hear everything balanced and clear. When I saw some of the greatest shows there, like The Who and Jimi Hendrix and Procol Harum, and the acoustic in there was so great. Yeah. Is that the, the first place experiencing one of those PAs? Do you remember the first band where it was like, this is a record live? Um, yeah, well, even um, before the Fillmore, the, well, the Fillmore itself was called the Village Theater. And I saw Cream there. I think that was the first show I saw. And that already had a really good quality sound. Um, there was a place called the Anderson Theater, which was across the street down the block from the Fillmore, and they had a good sounding system. And I saw the Yardbirds there. I think it was 67. So that was the very beginning of that kind of quality. You know, it was kind of, you know, before that, you know, these bands would come even the top bands, and they would just use whatever PA, you know, the venue had. Right. Well, you, what you are know? you going to do, Carrie? Like, that's a lot to bring, you know? It's enough to bring the band and all the things you need on stage, let alone the stage. <laughs> like. Yeah, I know, but that's, you know, now the norm. That's what yeah. everybody brings, their own stage and their own PA. So it, it really progressed. But I remember sitting in the Fillmore many times thinking, God, if only the Beatles could have played here and we could have sat and listened to them do their thing with this sound. That would have been amazing, but uh, it just wasn't to be. Still, to see them, though, that's pretty That's pretty cool, man. Um, uh, oh, yeah. Real thrill. A couple more questions. I really appreciate your time. Um, where did the 67 miles per album title come from? Because it's like copious notes. It's catchy and thoughtful, man. Well, I guess at some point we all, especially now with the internet, but I, I just somehow knew from some source that the planet Earth is moving through space at 67,000 miles an hour, and it's circling the sun in its orbit. That's how fast we're going. Even though everything seems so calm and still, we are literally, you know, speeding through space, and I thought... Kind of interesting. That means, like, in an hour, we've literally 
moved 67,000 miles. And so if I make an album that's around an hour long, the listener, by the time he's done listening, will have traveled on this trip of 67,000 miles. I just thought that was interesting. That's really cool. So that, yeah. that was kind of the thought process. Very cool. That's that's awesome. I love it. I love it, man. Um, yeah, I, I like to feel, you know, put that into people's heads that if they sit down and listen to this album, or, you know, they could be doing anything they want for an hour, but in this particular case, they'd be listening to this album knowing that by the time they get to the last song, they literally have traveled 67,000 miles. That's a long ways. That's amazing. It's a major trip. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, it's funny. I was just talking with a student about this idea—the idea of relativity, right? The idea that you're in one spot, flying, moving that fast, but it feels like nothing. And like right. that, it's such a you know kind of like simple but profound concept when you really kind of in in uh, like think about that. And to put it in concept of like uh, listening to one record and to know that's I think that's a really it's a really thoughtful, profound way to like kind of put a record, man. That's cool. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I kind of stumbled upon the pun because when I thought it's sixty-seven thousand miles an an hour, and then I changed hour to album, which kind of sounds like you know. So you have this light. It's not not a great pun, but it's still kind of in the tradition of a lot of my album titles that have puns built in. <laughs> I love it, man. Well, beautiful, my friend. Well, Richard, oh. thank you so much for your time, and I, as always, enjoy digging into your career, and uh, I look forward to talking to you for the next one. Is there any, <laughs> any is there any, any, like, drum tracks hanging for this next record? <laughs> there are actually still a few more of those kind of garage rock style ones that we I must have, I laid down a lot of tracks I guess because there's still a bunch of those so we're gonna do a couple of those for at least bonus tracks for this album for the Kickstarter people that that got that level of uh, contribution yeah. uh, so we're we're gonna actually work on one of those I think this weekend and uh, Yo, Spike Spiegel here. You just listened to Zig at the Gig Podcast. Keep riding the bebop. See you, Space Cowboy. Bang.